0: Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. My guest today is Elizabeth Timmy, founder and co-executive director of LA Moss with Helen Lung. LA Moss is a nonprofit urban design organization that helps lower-income and underserved communities shape their future through policy and architecture. During this episode, Elizabeth talks about LA Moss and some of the exciting work they are doing in our city. Elizabeth and Helen were just named Emerging Voices by the Architectural League of New York, and Elizabeth is also part of the Recode LA team. Elizabeth is a graduate of USC's School of Architecture and Harvard's GSD, and comes from a rich background immersed in architecture as the daughter of the late Robert Timmy, who was the dean of USC's School of Architecture until 2005. Elizabeth talks about what it's like to be a female third-generation architect and her journey to L.A. Moss. I admire Elizabeth's conviction, openness, and her intellect. I love that she does not accept things for how they are and challenges what they could be. I hope you enjoy the conversation we had.
1: I started L.A. Moss when I was... Eight months pregnant. Wow. With my first. Uh, well, we got the 501c3 designation when I was eight months pregnant. I started it, I think, when I was four months pregnant. And then we had one employee for that first nine months. And uh-huh. then I hired Helen, who quickly became my partner, within f- eight months after that point. Wow. Of getting our 501c3. So my my five-year-old was eight months old when Helen came on. And then I had my second in 2015 and I took four months off. I was working the whole time. We had our fundraiser that year, uh, a week before I gave birth (laughs) (laughs) with 200 people. Wow. That's crazy. I don't have any kids. I'm terrified. (laughs) Uh, I don't think anyone's ever, I think. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever ready to have kids, but I also think that you're a kid until you have children, which is weird. And I also didn't have any plans to have children. Um, my father was an architect and I was raised in the architecture community as if that was an extension of family. So I remember playing in the university of Houston, uh, Architecture school is a little like four year old like running around. My dad won the Rome Prize when I was two and a half, and we lived there until I was three and a half. So my earliest memories are being in his office and being at Crits and stuff like that. And I didn't really identify with being um, capable of having children, uh, so it was kind of an it was an interesting. And then I went to an all girls Catholic school. On top of that, and. Um, It was never really discussed with me or brought up that I was female. So it was very interesting to go to architecture school and then to see the kind of inherent differences in how I I think other students and faculty um, would engage women in conversations around reviews or even like debates. So that was like a big shock that I was not prepared for.
0: Did that only happen at the GSD, do you think? No, at USC. USC.
1: That was, I was, I remember being 18 and then raising my hand and then someone sitting next to me being like, you raise your hand a lot. And I was like, I raise my (laughs) hand just as much as the other person who has their hand raised. He was like, yeah, but you know, I was like, I don't know. What are you talking about? Because I had been in a bubble, really in a vacuum where my gender was not an issue. And so I think it took me like about maybe five years or six years. It took me... Until after having a daughter of my own to come to peace with the fact that there are are like inherent benefits and drawbacks to being uh, a woman, Mm -hmm. a female architect.
0: What do you think those are?
1: Um, I think that, you know, L.A. Moss is not happenstantially creatively uh, driven by its uh, collective collaboration. I don't think it's happenstance that it was very natural for me to bring my partner on. Even though I was the founder and to share a directorship with her, um, I think that there is something inherently appealing and uh, productive and positive about collaboration and natural. And I think it's a kind of inherently female attribute and asset, and it also allows for us to problem solve quickly. So that's that's a plus for sure. I think the the downside, and this is like an offensive thing to say, but I, something I hear a lot is you guys talk a lot
0: (laughs) (laughs) from, okay. Who do you hear that from?
1: Just like every, every, uh, every male that I'm close to that comes in the office and they're like, how do you, you talk so much that how do you get things done? But we're also multitasking a great deal. Um, which I also like to think of as being something that is uniquely uh, a kind of female brain trait. Um, so I think sometimes there's, you know, we can kind of over collaborate or, or over talk or over kind of get immersed in that kind of soup. And so there's, uh, I think, the kind of pragmatism and The this is yours and hierarchy and stuff like that took us a long time to create inside the office. It was something Helen and I were not very interested in. We weren't interested in hierarchy and we weren't interested in like promotion or it being very clear why we were doing what we were doing. And we were comfortable with it being intuitive and fluid. And I don't think that that's entirely positive or healthy, especially when you get to an age that we're at where we're four four or five years out and we have younger staff in the office that are fellows. And I think hierarchy and delineation and clarity and being straightforward, all of that is really helpful because it also allows us to kind of measure our work and the impact of our work. So I think that's something that we've had to work on. And I'm happy to say that I think we're doing it well now. That was not something that was inherent to either of us as co-directors in the beginning. Right. It's something that you kind of learned along the way as you grew, it it sounds like. And I, I mean, I love, I love architecture because I love that there's so many different architects in the field. There's so much diversity. And I don't think that, I think that the way that we talk and engage is very conversational and we love open-ended conversations and the kind of presentation, let me tell you about how I'm a genius and all of that, um, that kind of very stoic podium thing is very male and it's very uninteresting to me and I'm fine doing it and, we, and I do do it, but the kind of tabled conversation with a bunch of practitioners in a round table seems to be more often than not how we have talks now. And that's awesome. And I love that. And that's really exciting because you don't know what's going to what people are going to say. So, I wouldn't say that our I would say that the culture of architecture seems even since I was a child to be navigating towards something more fluid and open-ended, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah. So, before we get too far into the deep end, can you yeah. tell me like if you were to define LA moss, what is LA moss?
1: I can tell you our mission. Yeah, which is very definable. <laughs> Um, we are an urban design nonprofit that helps lower-income communities shape their own growth, and we use policy and architecture to do that. Okay. And I think, so
0: the reason I'm asking is I, I bet a lot of people ask you to define it because it's so different from
1: everything out there. Yeah, for sure. It, I think it depends. There are a lot of planners and urban designers and urbanists, Mm -hmm. which in and of itself doesn't mean that you know urban planning, but more so I think that you're like a junkie of Ciclovía and like this whole future LA concept of the river being public and public transit being accessible. And it seems to me that those people never ask what is LA Moss? They always are very excited and very engaged and very aware of our work and they understand it as being this Uh, complete world of things that you tie up together in a bow and that's L.A. Moss. But architects seem profoundly confused by L.A. Moss. Sure. Yeah. Because it's so different from... Architects in the past... I guess what architects have been doing in the last 15 years. Yeah. But then I think that if I was sitting at the table with Louis Kahn or Le Carbusier they might be dicks as mammals. (laughs) But they, and I, we might have some problems if we like needed to talk about the personal lives, but I think they would get what we were doing. You know, you look at how like Corbusier engaged with and created or helped to create CIAM uh, or how Khan approached Philadelphia is not at all dissimilar from how we approach Los Angeles or the conversations in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, CIAM was like a very white, very vanilla, very like elite group of uh, privileged academics talking about the city. And and the way that like Corbusier talked about populations and poverty is awful. And the way that he planned them is abhorrent in many cases. I mean, there was a lot of ambivalence towards... Uh, what the concept of around what modernism was doing and how it was kind of suppressing people without access to uh, equity or resources. And there's a lot of ambivalence about the impacts of architecture at that scale. But that being said, I think that the idea of uh, kind of policy or the law of architecture or the law of construction was not foreign back then. And it's only through liability and litigation and this climate of you do this and I do that that I think really came about in the in the eighties and the nineties, where architects really began to do more and more and more increasingly specific, and finite things. But you know that is in the kind of world of of taking on more technology, and taking on more responsibility, for. Um, the embedded thought behind a building. So, you know, here's a parametric skin or here's a green kind of calculation in the building. Here is how everything is lead. So, you know, even though architects are kind of shut out of the conversation about why the building is, they are kind of overly involved and less paid for designing the building to a level of, of like specification that does seem absurd. So I think that was a climate in which I came back to Los Angeles in 2012 after working abroad and in Boston mostly. And that was the climate where I thought this is crazy. How LA engages uh, public projects is insane and how architects engage the public is abhorrent. Um, so, that was really the beginning of thinking about what L.A. Moss could be. And I mean, I was also told a lot that there was no need for architects in Los Angeles at the time. By who? Everyone, even other, other architects. <laughs> were the, like the most unemployed group <laughs> next to lawyers. Yeah, I mean, uh, people were, I remember in the thick of it, Rem Koolhaas went to, gave a lecture at USC uh, in like 2008. And he said, the idea that everyone in this audience is an architect and is studying to be an architect and is putting their energy towards that, I find inc- incredibly depressing. And I just remember that being such an arrogant thing to say to a bunch of people who are excited about the future. So even our own profession was critical of its value. And so when people would say, there's so many of you, there's all these schools in Los Angeles, what's the point? No one could answer that. Um, and so that was tough and that, w- that seemed insane to me because I'm, you know, a third generation architect, like I know the value of architecture. It's, it's got so many different, di- different definitions, so many abilities to provide, uh, meaningful outcomes and impact. Like it can be an art, it can be a profession, it can be a way to create economic development. It can be all these things. What, what do you mean? What's the value? So that was a big part of coming home and wanting to prove that. I think everyone was wondering what the future of architecture was. And I think it's sad that it seems for the most part everyone doubled down on what we were already doing. You know, Hernan became the head of SciArc. Uh, UCLA, like, didn't seem to, I thought UCLA was gonna say, hey, you know what, we're gonna reduce how much it costs to go to architecture school. we're going to have some sort of subsidized program or something, but none of that. I mean, I thought as a public school, they could do that. USC just began to like chase the kind of digital dragon and get more involved in this kind of grasshopper bullshit, which I'm not sure what the point of that is or how much you can control what you get even. And so I think still at this point in time, we don't really engage academia a lot because it's not something that, is really fundamentally concerned with what what the future of architecture is. But you teach, right? I was teaching at the uh, ACE Center uh, at Woodbury and doing design build around the idea that we were kind of creating these um, short, quick, affordable interventions for community partners across LA. Um, And a lot of them are actually on the other side of this river Uh at the Bowtie Parcel Um, in partnership with Clock Shop. In California, California state parks, but um, uh, it was just—it's incredibly time-intensive to be running these build projects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be fantastic to teach if there was any kind of pretext around us having a deeper conversation about who the client is. What's the pretext Mm -hmm. or the point? Um, The way that everything is set up right now for kids to learn about architecture, it seems pretty flawed in that you you stand up there and you present your work as if that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. I've never been in any meeting where the first thing I did is put things on the wall and then talk to people, talk at people about my ideas. That's never been how something starts. And I'm not sure why we have any, like, review system that promotes that. And, you know, it took me the last three years uh, of my relationship with Helen to kind of de that part of myself where I was um, speaking in a vacuum about my ideas. Even having an agenda that was, like, interested in the community and interested in community investment so even having that agenda i still didn't know how to reconcile that with my architectural ideas well yeah i mean i think a lot of what architects do is (laughs) often for other architects in a way yeah but what like an insecure thing to do like i feel like if i look like absolute shit The thing I will do is wonder if there's going to be any girls that are going to be somewhere and I want to look good for them. Like I've never (laughs) dressed up for a man in my entire life. I've only dressed up for other women because of that insecurity. You Uh, don't want to be judged by another woman for how you're looking. Okay. Right. It's the same thing with architects. Yeah. Like I have never been nervous speaking to planners, to the mayor, like to any of these people, only to other architects. Which is insane.
0: That is insane.
1: <laughs> it's super insane, <laughs> I, would be, right?
0: I would be nervous talking to the mayor. <laughs> no, because
1: he's a human being. Like, I don't know how to intimate that we have a culture founded on insecurity. And we've marginalized ourselves, even though we have all this privilege culturally. Like, by the time you're an architect and you're practicing or you're working, quote unquote, you have spent so much money to get there that statistically you're probably coming from an upper middle class family. So why? Like, why is everyone talking to each other under all these kind of pretexts of being oppressed by something? Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a huge problem that there's just a huge lack of diversity in our profession because of all of the barriers to entry. Not only like, does it cost a lot to Become an architect, but and it takes a lot of time, and you don't make but it doesn't pay. Exactly, it doesn't pay. And then you're if you're from certain cultures, you may not even be exposed
1: to that to what an architect is. Yes, all of that. And that was the cool thing about doing the design build is that the students that were like historically seen as not good, all of a sudden it was this part of their brain that is the best part to tap into as an architect that was spatial and potentially nonverbal but intuitive. Mm-hmm. that came out and would have all these kind of incredible solutions. And it was really disheartening. I mean, the real reason why I'm not teaching right now that is because it was it was hard to to work with kids who would shine in that studio and have all this complexity in their capabilities of thought and all this original, unique problem-solving and then to just watch them be completely marginalized in architecture theory classes and the quote-unquote material like exploration classes which are really just how many different ways can we fold pvc which is you know it was it was hard to see that we don't that you know if for instance if louis Kahn had gone into school or to dial had gone into school at like cyrc or they would have failed out (laughs) you know (laughs) they would have been like um this is not, maybe Louis Kahn wouldn't have because he was a good talker. And, you know, we're just having, yeah, we're just like completely developing a group of talkers and not doers, which is super boring. So, I mean,
0: just so you know, I teach at Cal Poly <laughs> and like, um, so I teach first year and yeah. so there's a little bit more diversity in that student body in of itself course, just because they haven't before they fail out exactly or yeah. dropped out or whatever yeah but you know it, it it is interesting because on the one hand you're asking them to to really produce so much work and spend so much of their time in their lives dedicated to architecture yeah for some students they are able to express it better yeah in writing than talking yeah. or the, it's or it's all different in,
1: yeah yeah And that's what I loved about architecture was that it had all these different um, routes towards accessing really big, uh, potent ideas. And there wasn't a right answer. And so you did have like Zaha Hadid and Sejima both getting like the highest accolades because there wasn't a right approach. And that was great, but I don't think we teach it that way. Um, And so it's, it's sad to be adjacent And to witness the way that we kind of erase individuality. Because architecture is a profession of individuals that are collectively working for something, towards something better. You know, looking at first year, like, how does it not upset you? When you look around, you see it's just like a bunch of women, like, you know, other female practitioners with a diverse student population trying to teach them these really great big ideas and getting really excited about it. And then you just slowly start seeing as it gets into topic, it's just white men teaching their ideas relative to the professional background that they've been able to create because they've gotten opportunities that the women who are teaching first year will never have the privilege to get. I think it's getting better. I, I honestly do. Yeah. Um, but these schools have quotas for the kind of minority populations that, they'll, that they need to have as a part of their teaching staff. And they all go into teaching the first and second year. Hmm. Like, that's, I mean, I'm also coming from graduating USC in 2005. So that's 10 years ago and it's USC. Right, But, I mean, even looking at CIRC, it's it's not that different. No, it's,
0: there's still a huge problem in academia for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think where I say that it's getting better is that I think that the women in the profession in academia... Are banding together more, it seems like, mm-hmm. and supporting each other more. And um, there's a lot more women in the chair positions now yeah. um, or dean positions where they're starting, you know, they, they're For in sure. these positions where they can institute change. I
1: do wonder, though, and I've been thinking about this recently if white women, and this is like really <laughs> loaded, if, if we count as progress especially looking at our voting record across the United States. Gosh, that's awful. Um, I don't know if that is a litmus test to the health and the diversity of our community. Hmm. Um, and it's like a very polarizing thing to say, but it is how I feel. And I think just because something includes me personally doesn't mean that it's diverse um, or accessible.
0: I have to say, I feel like I, it doesn't hurt to have,
1: yeah. (laughs) you know, it's better than it's better than the alternative of nothing. I don't know, because I've seen a lot of like, look at Denise Scott Brown. She completely assimilated into, you know, this kind of culture. And in the end, she was completely ignored. And it took a lot for Mm -hmm. us to bring attention to that as women. And I'm not sure we made any progress in the end. And so if you don't, create a system for the most marginalized, uh, isolated minority to participate and excel in, then you don't have any system, right? So I don't think white women are like the duct tape for the problem, (laughs) (laughs) you know? I think we've been acting like that since like Eileen Gray or whatever. Sure. But I don't think it's really changed anything substantially because we haven't fundamentally made it accessible to someone who, you know, is from South L.A., who has like immigrant parents or you know parents in poverty we haven't made architecture work for them to have a voice in it so i don't i don't know you know not to be super pessimistic but i don't know what you know but i think progress we've made yeah and that that question is larger than
0: something that can be solved through architecture school Mm -hmm. i mean and it but it, it seems like that's what you're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Out of your frustration with the profession, frustration mm-hmm. with school, um, in a way, you're just making architecture accessible or the design process um, po- through policy, through involvement with the actual process.
1: I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because in the beginning, that was my goal, but... I was really surprised by how many people didn't think that was good enough or important. When I was like, what are you talking about? Like I just, all I want is to have a, someday to have a uh, group where architects are doing stuff and people are, um, people in the office are being recognized for contributing to something more than formalism. And it's gonna change the conversation in schools and people are gonna hold us up as like this like wayfinding point towards substance and uh like grounding and then you know i would talk to anyone who wasn't an architect and they'd be like okay who cares like why would anyone care what you guys talk about like it's very clear once you talk to people who aren't architects like we talk to each other and we care a great deal about the resilience of that conversation um no one else does No one else cares how we talk to ourselves. Sure. Of course, right? Sure, But it's such a big, like, it's such a, it's it's such a, like, huge thing. Like, today we were announced as Emerging Voices with the Architecture League. And it was such a big deal. But then at the same time, my partner, Uh who's a policymaker, was like, I'm really happy for you. (laughs) We both got the award. And she was like, I'm really happy for you. But it's yours, too. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just... Uh, like that kind of Beaux-Arts like background of all these hurdles that you have to reach and all these measures to which you kind of hold yourself adherent to like a, a series of like not explicit like principles and it's just it's like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves for how unambitious our work is you know and like I don't Actually, think anyone cares about any of the things we accomplish inside our own discipline, and I don't think they have any (laughs) merit in the real world, which is insane. I mean, they they used to tie back, of course, to like these incredible public works projects, but we have not been having those conversations, and so now they're completely removed from that with all of the pomp and circumstance. And yeah, I was just like, and I I can't go to the lecture. I'm. So, like, this was actually the first award that my dad's firm got in 1970-something, or maybe in the early 80s. And it launched his architecture career, and the woman who uh, gave it, I talked to her on the phone, and she had awarded it to my father as well. It was part of that. And so it was really meaningful because my father passed away uh, 12 years ago. And it was really meaningful for me. And, you know, all my, the, the only thing my partner can do is just be empathetic (laughs) because (laughs) outside of all of that, it's not, there's no there, there, you know, Us giving awards to ourselves is not a thing of note and historically, and, you know, in the last 20 years, it hasn't been in relationship to projects that are built or things that are getting done. Even, so even more so, these awards have less merit to people outside of our field. Do you think if
0: your father were here, you would be like having a real debate with him? No. Because I don't know. I had never met him. No. He was.
1: He would say these cryptic things that I wish I could follow up with him on. Like, I don't like Rem Coolhouse. <laughs> we were in the elevator once, and he said that. And just to the doors uh-huh. with his back to me. And I said why and he said i know what he's doing and i don't think it's that clever and i said what do you mean and he said someday when you're more mature as an architect i'll tell you <laughs> and i think about that all the time like what does he mean he, yeah. he's not it's not that clever i love rim i think Rem coolest is awesome um but i also like all like i like i like all of these people that have this like you know kind of index of thought that they've really over the years kind of progressed and developed it's all fascinating i was so i mean but he was very much like he was very obsessive about me learning how to do architecture as if it was 1950 whatever so i didn't learn anything computer related and that is why i went back to grad school so i did inking i penciled, drew everything so much so that I would take my drawings and scan them in and then retrace them in Illustrator. Because at USC at that time, they would hold up, your, hold up a scale at your final review and make sure that your hallways were three feet and all that stuff. And they would make sure that you didn't have dead-end corridors and if you were like one foot outside of sure. that, yeah. then your, your drawing wouldn't pass for mid-review. And so it was like super rigorous about the, the background of what you can and can't do so i mean he would be like amped i think he'd be super excited about this stuff i was thinking recently which is kind of a depressing thought you know up until maybe a year ago i thought he'd be really proud and then uh a year ago i started to think oh no he would think that he held me back and that's a really weird feeling to think that because yeah
0: I feel like maybe you had to be immersed in that in order to sort of let it go and reject it in a way. Yeah, for
1: sure. I mean, I think not that he held me back, but just that it's really hard to explain. But now that I'm a parent, I think if I had seen my child, like, you know, if I had seen my child's arc and that I passed away and then two years later, they went to Harvard and then right out of Harvard, they were working in. Rwanda. And then, you know, two years later they founded their own firm. You know, if I had looked at that, I would have thought, well, you know, I was holding this person back. Like they had all this potential and they were trying to engage with me and and I'm happy that I left, which is like a really weird thing Hmm. to think about. And, you know, I, I worked for ZGF, which is Zimmer Gunsland Vaska here. It was super, super hard on me. Um, and I did it because you know I wanted my father to see that I wasn't just an artist; that I was actually able to practice. And I think him passing gave me the room to define architecture for myself, but it's like a catch-22 because he would be the first the first person I would want to talk to about all this work. Right? He was like deeply involved in the community. I know that one of the council offices had a moment of silence when he passed away because he was that involved in this idea that architecture was a civic enterprise. But I mean, all the more so why I wish we had more minorities in our discipline, because when you're kind of out there fending for yourself, you're not really trying to make it work for anyone other than you. And that is how the majority of people get through this world and having the um, privilege of an architecture education and knowing how to problem solve in all these dimensional ways, it, is, it would be so incredibly fruitful and incredible to see people who, you know, had no one but themselves to answer to uh, excel in our practice. And so I think that's also what the passing of both my parents taught me was that in the end of the day, you're just doing this for yourself you know, and it should be meaning that what that for that criteria is, and with all these layers in architecture, I think we kind of miss that. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, how did L.A. Moss even? How did you even get the idea to start it? And like, how did you even have confidence that it would
1: work? It didn't. I mean, it was very circumstantial, and so it's not fair because. Whenever I get asked that, the, my response is, like, it's, it was a very atypical circumstantial thing. Like, the sun was out, it was 90 degrees, and I had flip-flops on. And, so, like, it was not, it was kind of random in that um, I had been working with a group called Mass Design Group. And that core group of people had, were in my class. And I had come out of Zimmer, Gunsel, and Frasca doing uh, construction administration in hospitals. So I knew how to build hospitals and I started talking to them and then I started helping them. And then I started talking to them about their business model because being a second generation architect, I heard about the finances of architecture more often than not. And so my dad was an entrepreneur in a way because he had his own business too. So I started helping them in this way that I think wasn't the kind of standard way, in addition to being a kind of lead designer. And it was really heartbreaking to go from that venue or format in Boston where i just feel like people are throwing money at people to solve problems it's adjacent to mit and and like there's just so much money around social enterprise there and then to come back to los angeles and people say oh like you're based in los angeles even though you're doing all this interesting work i was like what are you talking about los angeles is this incredible country like i'm lucky yeah and there wasn't any and and then i was trying to go to lectures to check in on stuff. And it was such an insular conversation for how many different schools there are and what a diverse city it is, that I wanted to come back here no matter what and start a nonprofit. I wouldn't have had that idea to do a nonprofit if I hadn't watched Mass Design Group have to form one to be able to keep building those schools. And so um, I knew exactly what to write and exactly what to say because they had fought with the IRS around copyright and all this stuff that I didn't care about. And so uh, it took like five months or six months to get our 501c3 from the moment that I sat down and wrote out what it should be to the moment we got our designation, which is super, super rare. But it was because I'd been through it with Mass Design Group and I kind of knew what the sticking points were. And um, it was also because there there wasn't any other person filing for a 501c3 architect in Los Angeles, right? Like (laughs) it was not, um, and I think a lot of people were in school at that time. This was 2012. And then we had like two foundation opportunities that came from my work back with Mass Design Group. And one was a kind of East Coast Foundation that knew that I was interested in doing this in LA and they wanted to support that. And then the other was a hospital that I had been working with in the US and they wanted to further me looking into um, kind of population issues with their catchment area. So I kind of used that to start the office and then met Helen at a good magazine party which is super strange because I wouldn't, I don't believe in good making for being a nonprofit. I still think it's an awful way to approach things like the veneer of doing good is really caustic and, and harmful. And, um, my partner thinks that good magazine is too cool for her. So she wouldn't have gone if she hadn't been dragged to it. (laughs) So I was too cool for that, and she didn't think she was cool enough. And uh, Will Wright introduced us, and we had coffee a week later. And then a week after that, I offered her to be the head of social impact or something. And then six months later, I asked her to be my partner, which sounds really romantic, but it was not. um, Well, I think there was crying for sure. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, she was like having people headhunt her and she was convinced that I wouldn't want to share a directorship with her. And there was all these prestigious jobs knocking on the door for her because she's a very accomplished um, and incredibly talented person. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, can't leave. I don't have anything like this isn't a thing without you. And she was really blown away. She still, we talked about it yesterday, how she was (laughs) blown away that I was like, you're my, you're the co-ED, what are you talking about? And she was shocked that like the next day I wrote up like a full thing of like you, this is you, the co-ED. And I had, we voted on it with the board within a week or something. So it happened very quickly, but it was very much the only way that this could have started. Mm
0: Mm-hmm well a lot of your work is with politicians or yeah. so i mean she has that skill set right
1: yeah she has a background of having worked for the mayor um and she was working with him when he was a councilman and she was his field deputy she's from this neighborhood she grew up in Frogtown um And she's a a second-generation Chinese-American and uh, was raised in a housing project out of Chinatown before she came here. I think they moved here when she was about two or three. Um, So, and I grew up in Los Feliz in the 90s when it was kind of in transition. Um, And I'm, you know, I, I always felt like I was lower middle class, but I think my dad was just super cheap. So i was surprised,
0: yeah, knowing super everything cheap. he's
1: done. I think, you know, I was talking to his former partner at Rice, and I was saying, yeah, but we were always, like, struggling to get by. And he said, no. <laughs> no, you weren't. What are you talking about? Do you remember all of those trips we took to Europe? And I thought, well, yeah, but he always made it sound like he was getting school to pay for them or something like that. And he said, no, your father was just really cheap. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I, you know, it's been a process of kind of understanding along with the, you know, the comment I made about being a white woman, and that's not good enough for diversity. Um, I think it's been an honor to be able to be her partner and to be able to, even though I had this incredibly well-rounded youth of going to the West Indies and living there, going to Rome and living there, Mm -hmm. uh, watching my father start a program in France, I really had no frame of reference for poverty. And I thought I did, um, but the, the, and that's insane because Los Angeles is a very poor yeah. city. Yeah. Um. So it's been a privilege to be adjacent to her and to support her being a leader with me because I know so much more about how most people live. And I thought I had an idea and I had no idea.
0: So, I mean, how do you go into these situations where, you need to gain the trust from community members who may not even be interested in what you as an architect may be interested in or have been trained to be interested in. But, um, you know, how do you get them to trust you and be excited about the projects?
1: We're really fortunate to have a lot of relationships from the get go with local community groups. And so it's never us coming in per se. Uh, I think we're invited. To be there by different groups uh, like Trust South LA when we were working there, or um, the Council Office in uh, Watson Wilmington, um, or iHeart Wilmington, which is a different group, um, or Bitcoin Beautiful when we were working with Bitcoin Beautiful. Um, uh, so we get invited by those groups, and we also get invited by the different council offices that have relationships in the community. And so that in and of itself is bringing us in to a conversation rather than a presentation. And so Mm -hmm. there's never the kind of need to gain trust or to prove anything because we're not kind of one directionally talking about ourselves. It's mostly just being brought into a conversation and, sharing our background and being able to problem solve and deal with things that i think a lot of people find overwhelming and so when you're from the get go curious and interested and then your second step is to offer support it doesn't seem like a hard process mm-hmm. to engage it seems like you were engaging the whole time and you, i guess it was never there was never a concrete line where it started or stopped i think that we in school again like it the way social architecture social design is done is through presentation and then there's a lot of really fun diagrams of like architects with their pens and then people at the table next to them (laughs) or designing with them (laughs) um but i've never sat down next to someone and sketched that's not how any of that goes and a lot of it is uh, relationship building and being interested in the other person or the people or the group that you're talking to,
0: right. like i've I've read or seen a lot of photos and and read about some of the process here in Frogtown where um there were a lot of post-its involved and mm-hmm. um conversations. And it seems pretty tough. I mean, like, to be talking on on the on the one hand of, with a developer and saying like this is. What is economically feasible mm-hmm. versus this is what you want, which you know, depending on the individual, maybe no change at all. Yeah. But how do you, how do you even,
1: like, broker between those two worlds? Yeah. Well, that is how we got the idea for the backyard home. Was this idea that there was all this untapped uh, development opportunity that a resident could lead, and it was the idea of. Well, there's going to be some places along the LA River that are going to change, and that's in a different section of the river or section of the city that has a different land use. So your neighborhood has this residential R1, and then you have all this, you know, CM commercial, uh, industrial. And that's going to happen, and that's going to be kind of an out-of-control thing if you don't inform it. So what would you like, Mm -hmm. kind of? Yeah, yeah. And then... The other side of it, though, was also saying, but, you know, here's all this potential that you have. Yeah. And I think that the thing that we do in L.A., which is weird, is that we say, well, this is going to happen, so, like, what's the next nice perk that you want? And then that's the end. There's not a full conversation about, well, like, are you a small business owner? Like, what is your investment in this community? What are you struggling with? How can this be a full conversation about a neighborhood? It's just these one-off projects that are about facilitating and negotiating. And both parties are kind of stupid. Like the neighborhood council person does not represent the neighborhood. The person inside this development group who's negotiating on behalf of the developer doesn't necessarily represent the architect who designed the project. And so you have two people sitting at a table negotiating and neither is informed. So that's I think how we've taken a step back from that moment and tried to have a holistic conversation around the total neighborhood. Um, so it's not a, it's, it's not a finite line and it's not a black and white thing. Um, so it's kind of hard to answer that. But, but I think the thing I can say that we have made a mistake on in how we got engaged with Frogtown in the beginning three years ago was we said we had no opinion about what should happen. And that was a big mistake. That wasn't fair and that wasn't honest to ourselves or to anyone else um and so i think we could have probably done more if we had been honest about the fact that we had a background in knowing um what some good things were to do and instead we were pretty militant about representing the community's need at all cost and that we were just going to be a conduit for that and i don't think that that world exists. There's not any person that doesn't bring with them their own perspective. And so we're at that table because we have an informed perspective in the first place. So I think that it's because we weren't taught how to do any of this stuff that we thought we had to completely remove ourselves from the conversation. And that was at a disservice to the long-term plans of the neighborhood.
0: That's interesting. I mean, because it seems like a very valiant sort of um, approach that you
1: did take. Mm-hmm. It's also a very naive and sure. arrogant one to take. Interesting mm-hmm. that you would think that that's arrogant. Yeah, it was arrogant to think that we were that noble, that we could okay. be so, you know, pure. And I think people didn't trust us, even though you know Helen's grown up in this neighborhood, right. and a lot of the people that were upset about the process, Helen, uh, you know, played in the streets with or whatever. Helen, you know, these are Helen's neighbors that she was engaging with, and it's insane that we said we were impartial. Helen grew up here. She's not impartial. She went away and did a lot of work and a lot of projects and she's worked throughout Los Angeles and she has a perspective. And that should be a really huge asset in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think we've learned since then to be clear about what our perspective is and to also be clear about the the, the limits of that. But I don't think we did that early on.
0: Yeah, I guess there's a a balance, right? There's a fine balance where you're you know what your perspective is, but you're open to hearing the other perspectives and changing yours maybe.
1: I don't think anyone needs to change anyone's perspective necessarily, but um, it's important that everyone is navigating with the most information possible. Um, And this whole NIMBY conversation is really shitty. And I think it comes from people seeing bad architecture all over the city. Yeah. And just saying, I don't want any more bad housing, which is completely fair. And it also comes from this perspective of people seeing these development projects not having anything to do with their urgent and critical needs. And I'm on the Recode LA team, and even the way we talk about adding services or having people access services within the city relative to zoning, it's like insane. Like we're talking about self-driving cars and apps, 40 percent of los angeles if there's an unexpected cost or crisis the 40 percent of la residential population will go into debt so does that mean that they're driving cars or that they have a cell phone with apps on it probably not but we're not planning for that city and we've never planned for that city and so that seems pretty crazy at this day and age that we're like still not reconciling the fact that there's a lot of poverty Hmm. Does anyone plan for that? No, it's the idea that life happens to those, that portion of Los Angeles and they can go with the flow hypothetically. But I mean, yeah, it's insane. Like that, that section of Los Angeles should be the first section of people that are accommodated. And so when we talk about these like design districts or, um, historic sections of the city or, uh, uh, there's like a tech what was it there was like a tech corridor we we're talking about like all of that's awesome but none of that deals with nearly half of the population and i mean maybe you know i don't know maybe it is more than 40 and once you count in the homeless population like we're talking maybe half the city that doesn't have access to the majority of the infrastructure and services we're talking about planning so that's why we've been into last mile transit that's why we're into the backyard home for mm-hmm. people that are like asset rich and cash poor. It's all of these ways to give people access to things democratically that I think most of LA takes for granted.
0: Yeah, no, the or not
1: most of LA, but the people having the conversation about LA take for granted.
0: I think that ADUs are super exciting because for the first time in my existence, career of being like a small project architect. It feels like I could actually do something with substantial impact toward a social good that
1: was why I got into architecture. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have more alternatives for uh, infill because, you know, we can't make all of this stuff historic. Right. I don't, and I don't think all of it should be. <laughs> <laughs> I think either. a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do think it should be. It's not the majority of people, but it's the people right now who have the loudest voice. Hmm. And I think if you talk, even when we we're doing our engagement stuff and people are saying, I don't want anything new mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I want, even if we lose you know, 40 or 60% of the diversity in our community, I don't want to see a housing project. I don't want to see affordable housing. I don't want the whatever density and the height of that. Afterwards, they would come up to us individually and say, but... I hear there's this thing called a backyard home and I'm already kind of renting out my garage. So it was already this thing that even people who were having a guttural reaction to development, were trying to figure out how to do for themselves. And I don't think that that's surprising because I think that if you were in a neighborhood that you grew up in and you started to see these big housing projects and all these people moving in that you know you're never gonna like have dinner with, you're not gonna be excited about that, but you're gonna be excited about taking advantage of the fact that there's more people, you know? And you're gonna be excited about how your backyard home is gonna look or whatever. Those are two different things. Whereas I think most people see that as dupliciousness.
0: Well, I mean, I think the difference is you have ownership and control over that situation.
1: Yeah. And it's your neighborhood. So why shouldn't you? Yeah. I think that it's weird because you hear one conversation, which is my neighborhood for me. And then you have another conversation on curbed or whatever, which is like all of Los Angeles for everyone. And like, they're two very different conversations and they're very polarizing and i'm hoping that we're trying to do work somewhere in between because um neither is true all of los angeles is not for everyone like that's not how it works that's not how life works yeah you know and at the same time you can't have the silver lake reservoir just for yourself right in your view. <laughs> yeah you know so it's a cool moment i hope that it's, it's unfortunate that we're, there aren't more projects around housing that are supported by the mayor's office. It's unfortunate there's not more civic projects that are being done. But I don't know how there couldn't be because I feel like we have such a generation of people that are interested in something more collective. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely at a point
0: of crisis and it's not like it doesn't touch everybody
1: because it it absolutely does. I I mean, if the if the Olympics comes, we're going to we're going to be in such the idea that we would house all those people when we can't house ourselves is really insane and scary. And then you see Grimshaw, I think, and all of these, you know, UK transportation based people moving to LA, and you can just you can just transactionally see like what we're going to do is invest in infrastructure for the top, you know, 5% of Los Angeles, and we're going to but housing around it. And we're going to create these like little Tokyos and the rest of the city is going to be kind of ignored. Yeah. I mean, I don't even
0: pretend to have like know what the answer is. And I don't think anyone really does. People talk about like whether just having more housing supply, no matter what it is Mm -hmm. will help. And to some extent, I think that probably makes sense. Um, But I don't think that's the whole picture And I think the ADUs is one piece of it that was really exciting because change can happen faster at a micro level, Mm -hmm. like where everyone's able to do something rather than when a few privileged entities are able to do yeah. a few large things. Totally.
1: And if you look at how the Olympics is shaking out, it's that.
0: Can you talk just a little bit more about the actual
1: projects you're doing with ADUs, like the Section 8? and? So we have been funded by LISC, which is a uh, community lending organization O C I'm i always get my acronyms messed up and they've funded us to look into section 8 housing for backyard homes and to develop that program and so we have been having a series of focus groups in uh, lower income communities throughout the city around how to make it so that if you pull out a construction loan Or if you build or if you permit a backyard home, you become a Section 8 landlord, which can be a daunting process because it has some – the rental properties have qualifications around them and, like, standards. Um, And then there's also a social social stigma around Section 8, or so we thought. But these have been – like, we've had 60 people in these kind of workshops, which is kind of high for a community workshop. And, in the, and so we've been having a few of these and we have, I think, about, I want to say 11 people that we have throughout the city of LA that we have like vetted and it's possible, vetted in the sense that we've like looked at whether or not they can build in their backyard home and they are more than excited to be section 8 landlords and that's just in the first three months of the program 11's like a lot because there's a lot of criteria to meet to be able to have uh, a backyard that you can build in so that's one side of it we're also partnering with wells fargo and genesis which is a com- another community bank organization to build these uh, in lower income communities and we're hoping to tie in the kind of interest from the section 8 voucher in the lisc program into the um, kind of building collective that we have of Wells Fargo. Um, We're also the project managers for LA County's uh, ADU program. So that was announced last week or the week before. So what we're doing is we're helping LA County develop a program for Section 8 housing. That's great. So we're going to be doing, I think, three to five built pilots. And we're going to be kind of administrating and creating how they do um, backyard units in this kind of affordable Section 8 space. That's incredible. And LA County is like, I think, five times the size of LA City. Oh, yeah, and we're we're working with the Bloomberg I-team and the mayor's office to do this pilot of what an accessory dwelling unit looks like in a historic preservation overlay zone that's on a hillside. Oh. So it's very hard. (laughs) Yeah. And I think uh, we broke ground... Last year, late last year, and we're just starting the caissons. So that should be finished by June. And then we're working with Santa Barbara to create a kind of modular uh, stick-built backyard home that's like a series of small homes put together in different configurations to address different populations uh, that they have that need universal access design. So they're kind of designed for anyone in a wheelchair or with PTSD. It'll be a set of plans, and then the kind of architecture of it is flexible. That's incredible. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think these are opportunities. Because with the ADUs,
0: my fear is that everyone's going to do them and then Airbnb them out instead of like put them towards Mm -hmm. solving our own housing crisis.
1: Again, I just have to temper that with upper... Income white people may build them and Airbnb them. But the people that I know don't even have phones to do Airbnb. Like the majority, like we haven't ever talked to anyone who even has the Airbnb app on their phone. And I would say we've talked to over 200 people. Wow. So that I'm just okay. saying there's a big yeah. difference between the conversation we have at the kind of public or planning level and how people actually use them. And so, yes, affluent people will go ahead and make the most money off of these as possible in their neighborhood. But I profoundly doubt and I seriously doubt that anyone in Northeast LA is being their backyard home. Maybe one out of 10 or one out of 20 people are going to do that. That totally makes sense and,
0: you know, brings in my own
1: bias into what
0: I've been seeing. hmm um, Pasadena?
1: Yeah, sure. But, I mean, that's not the... Ma- or Pacoima? Like, no. Right. No one's airbnb being something in Pacoima. And this is already happening. Like, the accessory dwelling unit, I think we suppose that there's, like, 50 or 70,000 of them unpermitted in the city. We have 500,000 R1 homes. You know, a large majority of those could have backyard homes. So, the numbers we're talking, if we can get these built, it's we're going to, like, blow the lid off of the current number were of units, affordable units we're already building per year, which I think is like around a thousand, if that.
0: I, I really admire everything you're doing here. Oh,
1: thank you so much. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, I'm um, very flattered to be asked to speak. And that's our show.
0: I'm your host, Audrey Sato. You can find me online at www.xx-la.com or on social media at podcast. If you like the show, please do me a huge favor and write an iTunes review or share it with your friend. If you have comments or want to hear from someone in particular, please reach out. I love hearing from you. Thank you for listening.